everyone. Welcome to Reverb. I'm Alex Elberg. And I'm Calvin Pollock. And on today's episode, we're going to be uh, continuing our Rhetoric of Place series. This is part two of our Rhetoric of Place series. Uh, if you haven't listened yet to part one, uh, I would absolutely go back and do that. It's a couple of really good conversations on uh, development discourse, uh, urban development discourse, specifically as it happens in Pittsburgh. Um, but today we're going to be moving on to a little bit uh, of a different topic. Calvin, do you want to take us there? Yeah, so today we'll be talking to a master's candidate in literary and cultural studies named Scott Reese. Scott's research and his teaching focuses specifically on theories about gentrification, what gentrification is, what it has looked like historically, and um, what some of the different academic and political perspectives are on it. Uh, before we get into that, uh, we just wanted to say, you know, Calvin and I do have a real local stake in this problem. We talk about this a little bit in our conversation with Scott, but we actually live in one of the neighborhoods in Pittsburgh uh, called Bloomfield. That is kind of the target of a lot of this redevelopment and gentrification right now. Just very recently, we've received news that our local grocery store has been, the property for that has been sold off and it's uh, going to soon be developed into high-rise condos with uh, mixed-use retail space. Uh, it's going to have a pool, a gym, uh, a lot of fancy stuff that, that us great unwashed will not be able to use, <laughs> not be encouraged to use, that's for sure. That's right, yeah. And so we, we kind of wanted to introduce and contextualize this episode by talking about a kind of Pittsburgh local meme that's been introduced here, especially within the last few years as more sort of urban redevelopment comes into the city, as more gentrification starts to expand accelerate here and that is it's sort of pittsburgh's version of keep austin weird mm -hmm. uh, which if we <laughs> drawing on other rhetorical scholars like jenny rice uh, she had this really good paper that talked about how keep austin weird was kind of appropriated by urban developers even though it was meant as a resistant sort of place-based rhetoric to try and establish the the value of local institutions or you know the sort of weirdness of austin that actually ended up getting picked up and used uh, strategically by you know in advertisements for cell phone companies companies and for other development corporations and things. So like why don't you tell us about this Pittsburgh version of this? So Alex? our Pittsburgh version is called, and this is just a quick trigger warning for those of you who are listening with kids. Uh, there's a little bit of a nasty word here. It is keep Pittsburgh shitty. Keep Pittsburgh shitty. <laughs> and, and so what we think is so interesting about this as a kind of, you know, resistant meme is that it is not easily recontextualized in pro-development, pro-gentrification discourse, this is, is it? Yeah, this is not something that you're going to see on a billboard going down uh, you know, Bigelow or Boulevard of the Allies or something like that. No, you're going to see it uh, you know, as a bumper sticker, maybe a T-shirt, um, maybe you know, scrawled on the side of a bridge. Um, and, and what it does, you know, it is in some ways a resistant rhetoric of place. Because what it does is it responds to the tacit assumption on the part of pro-development discourse that, you know, the area that's being redeveloped um, is in itself shitty and has these, like, persistent, intractable problems that need to be resolved by development. Problems like unemployment, um, you know, uh, crumbling infrastructure, things of that sort. I think what the phrase keep Pittsburgh shitty does is it says, uh, you know, if, if this is your solution to uh, these shitty aspects of our neighborhoods, just let us let us stay shitty. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it does also call attention to the fact that, like, 
you know, I mean, we we all want things like, you know, potholes to be fixed in the road and things right. like that. I mean, there are there are some parts of it that are like, yeah, you know, we'd like some of the shittiness wiped away. But um, but yeah, for the most part, you know, that that's also like some of the other infrastructure things are also what's keeping the rent low. <laughs> like the fact that we right. don't have uh, sort of like high rise developments in the neighborhood. Uh, I mean, this really this problem really does have other economic dimensions to it. Uh, as well as social and political dimensions that that often go unexamined. Yeah, and the commitments are often lacking from these big uh, private investment firms that they will actually resolve those problems. Exactly. Um, you know, we can imagine that those problems might uh, be mitigated in the immediate surrounding bubble of the new development, but will it actually filter out to the entire neighborhood and to the middle and working class people of of those neighborhoods i think that's that's what needs to be questioned um so two quick things uh number one we're going to be putting in the show notes a very good public source article that just came out um, this week about the new bloomfield development and it has a lot of interesting new details one of those details is that on may 24th there will be a public meeting hosted by the bloomfield development corporation um, about this sure save site development so we'll have all of the details on that meeting included in the show notes. Um, the other quick note is that you'll notice on this conversation um, some slightly weird feedback uh, happening uh, yeah. during our conversation with Scott. Yeah, we, we uh, were. So just to give this some context, we were recording in a, uh, a sound booth in our College of Fine Arts building uh, over uh, here at Carnegie Mellon. Um, and through, through no fault of theirs, it was, you know, we were plugging a mixer into the wall to get all the microphones onto one source. And, uh, as it turns out, sometimes with mixers, when you plug them into a wall, if there's, especially if there's a radio station adjacent to the room, uh, in which case, in this case there was, uh, we picked up a little bit of uh, feedback from the radio station. So you might hear some, some phantom, uh, music and voices in the background in a couple of parts. Um, it, it, it shouldn't be too distracting, uh, from what we're actually saying uh but this is just a disclaimer to say that it's it's in there and uh there wasn't really too much we could do about it just consider it another type of reverb on this episode that's right yeah. and also <laughs> we, we'd like to announce that we are hiring a sound engineer so yes if, if yeah, anyone that's right. <laughs> we'll find some way to we'll find some way to pay you so yeah all right well let's take it away all right So we're here today speaking with Scott Reese, a master's student in literary and cultural studies at Carnegie Mellon University. He teaches first-year writing a course entitled Gentrification from Paris to Pittsburgh. Scott, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me, guys. What's up, Scott? Oh, not much. I find it interesting, yeah, that we're, we're starting out an episode of uh, Space and Place just to kind of get everybody, give everybody an image of where we are right now. We are cramped into a... Uh, sound booth that is about uh, how many square feet do you think this is probably five to six yeah, yeah. so square feet or <laughs> yep. so we're yeah. co we're cozy cozy right yeah it's a little bit of cozy quarters but uh, you know yeah it's uh, I think it's very apt for the the subject that we're discussing absolutely yeah this is the size of a new micro apartment in, in these <laughs> liberties so that's right yeah, yeah. this would the, the the size of the room that we're in uh, this would cost about fifteen hundred dollars uh, <laughs> to live in one of these here in Pittsburgh um, so depending uh, on the location that's yes. right yeah yeah. Yes. yeah so uh, yeah I don't know Calvin do you want to introduce what we're talking about today yeah so as someone who teaches a class uh, you know a first year writing class oriented around gentrification like how do you um, 
define the class for your students or what does the literature that you guys read um, talk about gentrification Yes. Yeah. yeah, it's a great question. We start the first few weeks of class, we talk about different definitions of gentrification. You know, um, Ruth Glass, who was a Marxist sociologist in the 60s, came up with this term gentrification. She obviously meant it to be about class, you know, something from the word gentry. Right. Um, so we kind of start with her work. Um, we don't read her full book, but, you know, we do kind of talk about what she's saying. But of course, London in the 60s, which is what she's writing about, is is quite different, one, economically, uh, and two, socially, culturally, racially, than the U.S. is um, or you know, potentially other places are right. today. So, I mean, what what exactly does the process look like? I mean, is it so is gentrification something that's primarily defined, as you say, economically about, like, class interests? Um, I mean, obviously, yeah. we have to begin from, let's say, the city, right? Yeah. So this is occurring in a city. Yeah, absolutely. It's occurring in a city, although, you know, the city is increasingly tied economically with country and suburban, so there are, you know, issues with that, too. Um, traditionally, people talk about gentrification. They're talking about older cities or cities that have gone through the Industrial Revolution, have industrialized, mm-hmm. um, and then at some point during deindustrialization, hollowed out, or for some other reason have um, sort of been become unprofitable. People have left the city. Um, and now are suddenly profitable again for a variety of, of reasons. You know, if we're talking about here in Pittsburgh, um, you know, the steel industry left in the right. 60s, 70s, 80s, um, but since has sort of uh, the city's rebounded, you know, eds, eds and meds is the phrase people use with educational institutions right. and hospitals and, of course, new tech industry. Um, so suddenly it's profitable again. People want to live in the city core, um, if not downtown, but closely related neighborhoods. And so um, gentrification is the process that happens to people who have stayed in the city um, and suddenly find themselves not being able to afford the new prices as the city becomes more profitable or certain neighborhoods within the city become more profitable and so are often displaced, pushed to outer boroughs or um, suburbs, et cetera. Yeah. yeah. So why is the so why is this so often defined as? I'm just going to play the the devil's advocate yeah. for somebody who could say, well, this Please. sounds like a good thing. I mean, the city's getting prettier, right? Like, I mean, what is mm-hmm. it, you know what is it actually? We're, yeah, we're like revitalizing. Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh needed Eds and Meds. Yeah, we, we exactly. Had nothing else. I mean, these yeah. are all these are all good things that are coming in, right? Yeah, absolutely. So I think the this is the argument that's often made is that the benefits outweigh the negatives. But I think um, you know frequently when you're making that argument it's a really easy way to just ignore the negatives. So um, certainly, you know, people tout safety for one, right? They say it was uh, crime ridden inner city and now, uh, and now it's really nice and people can walk around at night and, um, you know, we have better infrastructure and and all these things. Um, And while that may be true for that neighborhood, that doesn't necessarily get rid of the underlying social problems that cause uh, that crime, that might cause poverty, that might cause uh, homelessness, those things tend to be hidden during depressed gentrification, not eradicated. Mm-hmm. They are not um, in any way solved. They're usually pushed to outer boroughs. Often they're pushed to towns, suburbs, or outer neighborhoods and cities that don't have the facilities to deal with those things. Mm-hmm. And so all of a sudden they find themselves um, having to, to take on new roles, and they might lack um, you know, certain facilities and money funding to, to deal with them as well. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's I think it's really interesting that gentrification is so often justified in in the interest of like safety, yeah. um safety yep. for communities. Um can you talk at all about um how New York kind of discourses about gentrification in New York? Yeah. Um yeah. you know, created a lot of the conversations that we're still having now. So I think, you know, people when they're talking about New York and gentrification, you know, they're usually focusing in Brooklyn, Williamsburg specifically. It's something we've been talking about for the better part of I don't know, a decade and a half now. Um, 
But I think, you know, I think for New York, it stems back again to deindustrialization, loss of industrial jobs, um, especially in those outer boroughs. You know, Manhattan's sort of been okay, parts of it. But um, but I think that, you know, back in the 70s and 80s, um, when the Bronx was burning and Ed Koch was trying to uh, clean up the subway cars and the right. war on graffiti, and there's always this sort of... Um, aspect that comes in it's the idea of like cleaning up the city or making the city safe law and order and, yeah exactly yeah, exactly right. and then you see, so then that you know comes through the 90s and giuliani cleaning up times square um and people get pushed out of manhattan as those places become sanitized and then they get pushed into the bronx get pushed into brooklyn um and then farther and farther back and now people are being you know right. pushed into jersey and queens and all sorts of yeah. But and and it's so interesting that yeah that metaphor of of sanitizing or cleaning up is, is so often used in the discourse that's used to justify that. So I mean, so that that's what's on the surface, right? Yeah. So what? Yep. So what? I mean, it seems like that's more of a euphemism, though, in some of the in some of the research that you draw on mm-hmm. when, you, when you teach about this. Um, so what's actually happening? Like, what are some of the more pernicious consequences? That happen as a result of this, you know, from the perspective of people who are being pushed out. I think what's happening pretty clearly is basically people are chasing profit. Developers um, are chasing profit, and so traditionally that you know that doesn't help necessarily somebody who's living, somebody who maybe have, uh, has low income, um, or otherwise maybe has a disability. They can't you know move very far from where they work. Transportation right. issues, things like that. Um, certainly the profit doesn't change, right? And right. so um, I guess I would say. You know, David Harvey makes this argument that um, capitalism uses cities as a heat sink, a way to suck up profit um, and a way to invest profit and put it there. But that profit doesn't necessarily come back to the community that it's being invested in, especially in gentrifying neighborhoods. Things like local businesses are pushed out that are owned by people who live in the neighborhood in favor of big multinational or you know, transnational companies. Um, you know, Starbucks comes in. Um, even even companies that are you know not necessarily that big, you know, a new local uh place that caters to a different clientele maybe serves um you know craft beer that people can't afford or right. um you know restaurants that are you know pricier than the ones that were there previously again it sort of creates not only a economic disadvantage but also a cultural disadvantage you can't live there and you know the, the community that you had once was uh, sort of disintegrated and, and pushed out Absolutely. and i guess a lot of times you mentioned this earlier but a lot of times the people who are pushed out for instance say like a homeless population mm-hmm. um which I believe occurred in New York, uh, like yeah. in the late 80s, when the homeless population, you know, in the Lower East Side was pushed out. It's not like they had anywhere to go. Uh, there wasn't, yes. there wasn't, you know, over, you know, an overabundance of homeless shelters, like right. no, absolutely not. They could yeah. have been staying, and they were there because they literally had nowhere else to go, and they just get, you know, pushed into shanty towns in other boroughs. Yep, yep. absolutely. That's exactly the the money for services and long-term thinking about this just doesn't follow necessarily though you would assume maybe it should as the tax base increases and you know the city might see money flowing in um that doesn't necessarily happen um some cities have been doing you know some things and, and you know, more recently especially you know san francisco has just uh started an, an another an, another initiative to work on um their problem with homelessness right um and sort of you know i've read that literature that comes from the city and they have said since all this tech boom that we've had has been, you know, increased the uh, the city's funds, we're trying to you know, do something. Um, so that, you know, that is potentially there, but often 
yeah, that doesn't that doesn't come along with it. You're right. People just get pushed to the to the margins, more to the fringes than they than they already were. And again, two places that often don't have the facilities to deal with them, especially if it's being if someone's being pushed to outside the city core. All of a sudden, it becomes you know the county budget or um, you know smaller towns that are sort of dealing with that, and they don't again have the, the opportunities. Another angle to this that we're very interested in is kind of the way that um, these poor and displaced and, you know, for instance, uh, desperate people in these areas who are turning to crime for whatever reason um, are often uh, imagined in popular discourse as kind of natives. Yeah, Uh, absolutely. this, This rhetoric of the frontier that... You know, when you when you're part of this process of gentrification in a poor neighborhood, you're actually charging out into the wilderness and right. and settling it and kind yep. of. Um, I mean, how does that factor into the way this gets talked? Yeah, that's about? the way that that's the way that often inner cities get talked about, right? People talk about um, the urban jungle, and that use of the word jungle right. is um, pretty, I think, key. Not only talking about sort of uh, the frontier. Kind of, it's, it's mingling the idea of the frontier, like the U.S. Western frontier, but it's also mingling in sort of the U, uh, global frontier from a U.S. capital point of view. Um, it's also bringing in a real racial element, I think, too. Using oh, the yeah. word urban, urban jungle, you're speci- I, you know, you're pretty specifically talking about um, you're making this metaphor based on Africa, right? You're yeah, making it, this metaphor it, based on like the deep dark. It's a very like Joseph fits. Conrad feel to the yeah. whole thing. It fits with the already existing sort of. Uh, nativization metaphors that yeah. belong that are often used in racialized discourses or racist discourses. Absolutely. And I think it links together development policies, mm-hmm. like policies on housing and policies on law and order and crime, right? right. Yep. It allows Absolutely. them to all basically culminate in the dehumanization of certain populations yeah. and the elevation of others. And, you know, it then allows people to use the um, the discourse of gentrification to, you know, enact like a savior complex, right? To yes. say, we're coming in and civilizing. We're actually helping you out. I went to a developer meeting, a uh, community meeting with a developer in Bloomfield here in Pittsburgh. Right. Um, there's a very uh, sort of prominent um, grocery store that is used by a lot of people who live in Bloomfield that the developer... Uh, has recently bought and is going to be turning into expensive um, housing and uh, there'll be a grocery store on the first floor but who knows if it'll be affordable the one that's there now is and the developer was talking about um, you know right now there's a large parking lot around the the uh, grocery store and the developer was talking about how they would be eliminating that parking lot and their building would be coming right up to the street front and the developer used used this idea of urban planning you know the idea of densification as such a good thing and he was saying you guys several times you guys are really going to like this you're you know very much using that kind of we're coming in and helping you we're doing something yeah. for you. nothing about that uh i think was going over well with the residents who were there they were vociferously right. arguing uh that this was not helping them because they were going to be losing the grocery store and um something they could walk to or they could take easy public transit to um but again it used that sort of savior motif um pretty clearly and i thought pretty directly which is kind of funny yeah, I'm glad that you brought that example up. We should we should also say um, this is a issue that Calvin and I both directly have a stake in because we and both, Scott and Scott too. I mean, we both live within I would say probably at least I, well, do you live in probably like a two mile radius of the grocery store? Absolutely, I do. Roughly, there's a huge yeah. hill in the way, but there, yeah, yes, yeah. But I mean, yeah. Calvin Whereas and I are yeah, a couple blocks. You guys, yeah, you guys easily can walk to it or, yeah. or bike to it. Yeah. yeah, no, it's my primary grocery store. I yes. shop really? there multiple times a week. Yes, yeah, yeah. and it and it is for a lot of the other people in 
Bloomfield, essentially what they're what they're doing with this grocery store uh, that they're demolishing to build high rise condominiums um, is I mean, they're creating basically what's known as a food desert, uh, which, you know, that we're now going to be probably at least two miles from the nearest non-specialty grocery store that has like a large kind of supermarket area where you can get lots of fresh produce and, and different varieties of foods. Um, so yeah, this is, this was a big problem or it still is, um, especially in our, in our neighborhood. And so, so this is kind of putting this in the context of other things that are happening, not just here in Pittsburgh, although it certainly is pronounced in multiple neighborhoods, but also in cities across the country is the, is, you know, the increase of these, um, you know, kind of what we were talking about at the beginning, uh, you know, the, the micro, micro apartments, uh, that are being built as part of these larger housing developments that are yeah. that are advertised as very flashy you know the the architectural style is is very you know sort of like hyper modern um yep. in 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 certain kinds of ways um but uh, what what happens with a lot of these or at least what's been talked about the way that this has happened in pittsburgh is that a lot of these a lot of these units are sitting empty ostensibly right yeah that, that a lot of these uh, i think the statistic that I had heard somewhere is that about you know a lot of these are are hovering around a thirty percent occupancy rate, which just seems kind of wild to me. So how is I, I don't know if you know about this. How is that a lucrative investment? What are the actual economic incentives yeah. to build things like that when it seems like nobody's actually going to live there? It seems to me a bet. It seems like they're you know hedging their bets that people are going to want to come back into the city, and and statistically that's true. People are moving. To the city, or at least some neighborhoods of the city. Though right. in Pittsburgh, um, there are other neighborhoods that are losing people, so you know it's it's sort of hard to tell. Um, but other cities, you know, for for sure, New York, San Francisco, um, yeah, people are moving to the city in droves. In fact, um, I was reading this fantastic book um, called America After Trump, uh, right. and they were talking about this sort of broader shift, and Americans are moving in mass migration that we haven't seen since the Industrial Revolution to cities. Right, and so. Um, and the, the, the statistic they used was by 2050, according to current projections, 70% of Americans will live within about 15 states. Wow. Massive concentration of people in the urban population. And, and you know exactly what the states those are, right? They're New York, they're California, they're, cities, they're states on the East Coast. Mm-hmm. Um, they're by and large not rural populations. Right. These people are moving to density. So it's happening. People are hedging their bets that that's what... Um, that's what's coming in Pittsburgh and in other cities. You know, in Pittsburgh, we're and other cities, we're sort of bracing um, for Amazon's new HQ2. Mm-hmm. Potentially, Amazon will choose Pittsburgh to move here and establish a new second headquarters. And developers are, I'm sure, already calculating that into their plans. You know, Amazon says they're going to be bringing or hiring 50,000 people. They need to live somewhere, and so developers are, are already thinking about that. Right. There are sort of statistics that say, especially in, in Pittsburgh, um, that it's an overdeveloped market. Um, I was just reading the other day that downtown Pittsburgh is now cheaper for office space than the Strip District. Wow. Um, which historically the Strip District, um, you know, was an industrial center and, and sort of had markets and trains all running through it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's now been been built up. There's, you know, massive expansion down there. And quite a lot of those buildings are only partially occupied. But if, you know, Amazon came or if Pittsburgh continues to grow in the way that people expect it to, I kind of personally think that it's over overestimating it's an exaggeration and potentially they won't know but you know if they can even get a 30 or 40 percent occupancy at those high prices maybe that's enough to sustain them for the short term you know i'm I'm not sure on their you know uh their budgets or whatnot but 
these are often massive companies that have you know millions of dollars in investment um, behind them. So, and I guess that that links up to a question about you know sort of city government policy, right? Yeah. So yeah. a lot of what tends to happen with this kind of like corporate driven gentrification is that these corporations that are moving in get sweet deals. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, what can we expect? Uh, I guess as of now, you know, Mayor Peduto is still keeping the uh, offer to Amazon for HQ2 mm -hmm. under wraps. But what could we imagine is in that offer in terms of, you know, sweet incentives? Yeah, I imagine... I imagine tax breaks by the millions. That's that's honestly the biggest thing that I think they can they can accomplish. Um, you know, Amazon says they want to be in a downtown urban core neighborhood. They don't want to be out in a satellite campus. You know, they don't want to be like right. Apple somewhere in the suburbs. Um, so I can imagine you know potentially like here are all the businesses, the blocks that we can give you. Here's you know the um, the real estate space. I'm not quite sure where that is in Pittsburgh, but um, I could imagine somewhere around the Strip or or, or possibly uh, East Liberty. East Liberty, well. something like that, yeah. 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 Google already has a headquarters there. It's kind of already becoming known as kind of yeah. like a tech, yep. tech hub or tech neighborhood in the city. So. Yeah, and I mean, I think part of what's interesting here is is what's unique about gentrification in Pittsburgh. Yeah. Because a lot of the cities that I think were the models for the, the kind of work that you do and that you're reading about, yep. um, you know, were these much bigger cities with, like, mm -hmm. uh you know, generation after generation of growth and, and kind of like working class led growth. Yeah, Whereas absolutely. Pittsburgh has this unique history of like, you know, a strong worker movement for a while that was, you know, just torched by business interests. Yep. And then, you know, the steel base completely collapsed. Yep. And since then there hasn't really been a strong kind of like middle class at all. Yep. Um, or to the extent that there's been, you know, it's been very concentrated in like the education and medical sectors. Right. Mm -hmm. So, you know, what can you can you think of anything that's particular to gentrification in Pittsburgh, um, given those economic factors? Yeah, I think I think there's a couple of things that are, are really interesting here. So, one, you're right; it's a much smaller city than you know New York or San Francisco or yeah. uh, Boston. I mean these are relatively new problems that Pittsburgh is having and they haven't necessarily dealt with them for a long time. And Pittsburgh, like you said, you know, was a city based a lot around one or two industries mm -hmm. and the region was based around one or two industries. And that's very different than some place like New York, which has multiple competing industries, mm -hmm. um, a very diverse economy. So if anyone fails, you know, the other one doesn't, um, Seattle, I think is a really interesting sort of counter to Pittsburgh. It's bigger than Pittsburgh, but, um, Seattle, when it lost Boeing in the, what, 80s or 90s, um, sort of slumped into a, a similar slump, mostly because it was a really big factory town mm -hmm. um, or a company town, is that I think the phrase people use, right? Um, and now it's a company town for Amazon. Amazon occupies as much real estate as the next 40 bus biggest businesses combined. In Pittsburgh, I think we're starting to be um, becoming more and more diverse. You know, yes, we have these tech companies coming in, but no one of them holds a, a grip over the city, right? If Uber left... Pittsburgh, then we'd still be okay if Google left Pittsburgh, we'd still be okay. But if Amazon, you know, comes in, that kind of is another uh, magnitude right. than we already have, right? Um, so in Pittsburgh, I think we see gentrification sort of happening slowly in some places, more quickly in other places, um, but certainly accelerating. I think all over the all over the city. I'm also interested in the cultural element because I, yes. you know, yeah, for sure. So like in you know, for instance, in New York. 
in the eighties you had kind of like a an art boom yep. that coincided with a real estate boom and, yep. and they were both extremely elitist. Do you think a similar thing has happened here or is it like smaller scale or, you know, huh, that's a good question. You know, I don't, I'm not sure to be honest. I think if it's, if it has happened, it's, it's at such a small scale. I don't think it's making, making any kind of bigger, uh, cause I think about things it. like the, the gallery crawls on Penn Avenue yeah. and, and, yep. and, and honestly like Bloomfield, which is, you know, set, to be completely transformed by this SureSave uh, development. Yeah. Bloomfield, for years, was kind of like an artist haven because it yep. was a place where you can get cheap rent and you can get right. cheap rent for studio space as well. Yeah. Um, well, I think that, I think you can see. I think that's this is a pattern that happens in Pittsburgh and happens in other cities. Seeing it here, you don't necessarily see it. I don't necessarily see it as strongly always because there's just so many, so fewer people. But certainly, you know, you you see it. So in that development meeting in Bloomfield. Um, you know, all the older folks who have lived in Bloomfield for their entire lives are there and they're sitting, you know, serving the chairs and um, there's, there's so many people that, you know, people had to be kind of stacked around the windows and yeah. um, all the people who are sitting sort of outside or standing were tended to be younger, you know, letting uh, other folks have a seat. And those people were, you know, like the bartenders, the tattoo artists, like the yeah, kids right. who sort of come in here, um, all the, the crust, all the crust punks, yeah, all the grad students, students like, we were the ones who were sort of around making this. I don't know, it was sort of kind of a. It was an interesting image actually to, to see. Um, right. Sort of this like circle of younger people around, and the definitely like all these artists um, who were there and uh, surrounding the sort of local population who have been here, you know, for their entire lives. Yeah, I mean, I think we should include ourselves in this oh, yeah. conversation. You're absolutely right. Because you know, in a way, you know, we are cultural workers. Yep. Yeah. We're, absolutely. You know, teaching and doing research on culture, yep. and and so that puts us in a position this bizarre position of we i think have both helped augur in gentrification mm -hmm. and also will suffer uh, as it accelerates yes yeah you know there's a lot of research on student-led gentrification or un university-led gentrification but i think a lot of it focuses on undergrad and you know where those students are living in the places that their uh, businesses they're frequenting but certainly graduate students are are different you know they're not necessarily here for as short amount of time always mm -hmm. Um, they may, you know, have families, they may you know, be a little older, like more settled, um, potentially could be involved with the community more, but at the same time, um, you know, move around a lot and, and that sort of thing. Yeah. I think that's, that's key. We are certainly a part of this yeah. I mean, on both ends. Yeah, it's it, well, and it also brings up for me the question of, you know, alternatives to gentrification and how we yeah. can actually call for things like that. Because yeah. even though, you know, yeah, we, we can maybe sometimes tend to think of ourselves as uh, kind of carpetbaggers or coming in mm -hmm. you know, and, and being a part of the process of gentrification. It also seems like just at the same time, we are we're a lot of us are also involved in active resistance uh, yeah. to this kind of thing, too. I mean, especially if we know the sort of dire implications of this, you know, even though they might not directly affect us, although they, they will to a large extent, um, you know, they could affect, I mean, the displacement is going to affect, you know, a lot yeah. of other people in yeah. maybe more visceral ways, but, um, but what can we, what are some alternatives? What are yeah. some alternative visions that we can call for uh, to, to sort of counteract some of the yeah, deleterious sure. effects of gentrification? I think this is a really important question because, I think a lot of this conversation around gentrification gets really heated because people don't see themselves individually as being intentional 
in their contribution to it. You know, well, I'm just looking for a place to live and I can only afford this place. Um, and so, you know, that's where I am. And, uh, you know, it's not my fault if, you know, people have been displacing the people use that rhetoric quite a yeah, bit. Right. Um, and so I think, yeah, being intentional about our solutions is maybe the remedy to that. Right. Right. So I think one of the huge parts of gentrification for me is not just about, it's not just about displacement. It's about, um, sort of ownership and who in the community has the kind of control, um, or as you know, Harvey calls it and Lefebvre calls it the right to the city. Right. Um, I think democratic control of the city is absolutely essential and specifically democratic control of individual neighborhoods as well. Mm-hmm. Um, in Pittsburgh, it's kind of funny, individual neighborhood, um, organizations are doing a lot of the work that the city itself is, is sort of shirking on, oh, wow. um, okay. in regards to affordable housing, you know, Lawrenceville, um, Lawrenceville Corporation is working on community land trusts, mm-hmm. which are one way of ensuring affordable housing um, in Lawrenceville and other neighborhoods are starting to pick up on it. Garfield, even right. over in Millvale, um, whereas the city's sort of largely silent on affordable housing. Um, there's a, a task force, you know, and they're doing task force we're, things. Yeah, we're looking into it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it's sort of something that, you know, I think uh, the mayor has put into sort of buy time mm-hmm. um, and it seemed like they're doing something. So. I think for me, sort of keys on gentrification or keys on urbanization that doesn't result in gentrification. I think that's, that's key, right? Right. Um, because certainly the model of a, a hollowed out city in which um, there's massive disinvestment is not a solution either, right? No, you know, we're, we're not advocating for return here. Right. Um, I think both ownership models of housing and businesses that give people who kind of live and work in the community access to the wealth generated by those things is an immediate first step. So tenant owned buildings, um, obviously home ownership is a different thing and helping people with low income or bad credit achieve home ownership is, is really huge. You know, um, one of the central takeaways I, I took from uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates' um, Case for Reparations, you know, the article he did a few right, years ago right. in The Atlantic, um, was just how much African Americans have been locked out of wealth accumulation based on property ownership right. through redlining other prejudicial um, policies put in the, in the 20th century. So certainly that is one key way. And people who own businesses, people who live um, in houses that they own are much more stable and they tend to, you know, create a cohesion in the community. They you know, become involved in the community um, in ways that people who are renting don't necessarily have. Right. And, you know, when you're renting, yeah, the big de- the developer is getting or the landlord is getting um, that profit. And they're not necessarily reinvesting. It's being extracted. Um, that new place in Bloomfield is going to be built by a company that's headquartered in Illinois, but works all over the place. I mean, it's Iowa. Mm-hmm. Um and certainly, you know, is not reinvesting here. So, I mean, there's simple, small things like shopping at local businesses and right. that kind of thing. I think there's bigger things like advocating for uh, tenant-owned, um, tenant-owned housing, tenant-owned businesses, um, policies around public land use. You know, so for example, Pittsburgh has a land bank. Um, in which they basically take land that's been sort of disavowed by, you know, banks have seized it or, mm-hmm. you know, there's sort of entangled leases and the, the, the um, city's taken over it with the idea that they'll return it to the private sector. Um, I think potentially for me, a better use would be to use it for public good, right? Whether that's right, right. housing uh, or whether that's, you know, community gardens, you know, things like that. Um, and there's actually, you know, some, some calls for that that are being made around Pittsburgh right now. So, um, you know, there are sort of ways that this can, can be done. Is there anything that anchor institutions like Carnegie Mellon could be doing? Yes, yes. absolutely. I love anchor institutions. I mean, anchor institutions, um, you know, this idea that there are businesses 
or organizations that are sort of rude in the community. They have deep ties. They spend money and they hire workers from those community from the community, and they're not going to go anywhere, right? Mm-hmm. Carnegie Mellon is not going to up and move to a different city or a, a different country for better tax breaks or something. Um, I think that is sort of a key holding on to your anchor institutions, but also working with anchor institutions to um, sort of realize that they are a stake in the community directly around them. Right. So the neighborhoods around universities tend to, for example, have a lot of student housing that's owned by sort of absentee landlord and um, deflates properties of housing um, for people who do live in that community sort of all around them. Um, There are ways that they can work with the, I think neighborhood institutions um, or corporations or development organizations to sort of better benefit um, the whole whole community. I don't know too, too much about that further, but I know there are, um, so in Oakland where CMU is, the Oakland Planning and Development Corporation sort of has a plan and they engage with the University of Pittsburgh and with CMU um, in order to sort of make better plans for student housing and, and responsible growth. Um, that doesn't push out businesses and, and families that live in those places. Other, and I think particularly in places where CMU is continuing to develop. Yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. That we need to get out on the front end of those yeah. developments yeah. and say, you know, consider the impact on the neighborhoods where you're developing. Absolutely. And, and what, you know, and just in general, if you're going to be moving into that neighborhood, like what can you do to improve it instead of mm-hmm. making uh, rent and, you know, unemployment and things like that worse? Yeah, absolutely. CMU just uh, what purchased that huge property in Hazelwood, yep. um, Hazelwood right. Green, they're going to call it, uh, which is massive robotics, um, teaching and working and innovating and disrupting uh, area. Or And they've had property in Lawrenceville and for a long time. Right. Absolutely, right. yep. Yep. I'm really appreciative that you're, yeah, that you're bringing, bringing all these sort of actions to the forefront as things that we can and should ask for, because I think that it's, it's really accentuating this interesting um, dichotomy that that we often think about when it comes to gentrification as being purely market driven, right? Yeah. Uh, rather than as something that's that operates because of the acquiescence of government and public officials. Yep. Um, when you know when we don't ask for radical, when we don't have radical demands, when we don't yeah. ask for things. Um, and we just assume that, well, the logic of the market is going to take care of it, and that's ultimately going to come out for the best good for everybody. And it's not the logic of the market that's necessarily working because we've had these zoning plans, we've had these housing um, values sort of instantiated in the city. In policy. And for yes. Yeah, but they haven't been touched for 50 or 60 years, right? Right. right. Um, they were sort of created at one point and then maybe revised and then sort of left alone, and, and people sort of haven't, um, haven't realized that those are things, yeah, that we can ask for. You're absolutely right. Yeah, I think that's that's really key. Awesome. Well, with that, we want to say thank you so much for, for coming and talking to us, Scott. This yeah, is yeah, a really enlightening conversation. We and appreciate Scott, it. And just nice. real quick, you are a member of a, uh, the housing committee of the local Democratic Socialists of America chapter, are you not? Correct. Absolutely. And so uh, what are we working on? Yeah, what are you working on? And, and I guess, if, yeah, if you just want to hype the committee. Yeah, I definitely want to uh, hype the committee. So... The uh, DSA, Pittsburgh Housing Committee, we're working on a couple different things. Um, One, we are planning a barbecue for later this month in April um, that is going to be sort of focused around eviction, specifically around evictions that happen in in Pittsburgh that have no justifiable cause, Uh, sort of no-cause evictions is the phrase people use. Um, This often happens when a neighborhood gentrifies. Landlords will find ways, they'll 
you know, kind of create tactics to evict people in order to sell the property, make money, and then, um, you know, whoever will buy it and, and sort of, uh, charge more or demolish it and, um, build something new. And so there are cities across the country, states across the country, even, you know, New Jersey and all of New York, um, have legislation on the books and, um, sort of preventing this, that you have to have just cause to evict people. So that's one of the things that we're pushing for in this, uh, barbecue that we're planning in April to have people sign up, talk to us about it and come to, uh, meetings of um, a couple different committees that, that are working on it, as well as we'll uh, have a way for people to sign up to get um, pro bono legal services to talk to a lawyer about um, their issues around eviction because often people um, are not provided a lawyer uh, in eviction court and um, landlords almost always have lawyers in eviction court, and so it results in um, sort of this unfair imbalance in the system. And it's actually something else that we are sort of pushing for the city to do, to enact, is to provide uh, legal services to people around eviction. Yeah. Awesome. That's fantastic. Yeah. Well, if you want to get involved with that, come to a DSA Pittsburgh meeting. Yes. Yeah. Please yeah. do. Thank you so much for your academic and your activist work on this, Scott. <laughs> we really appreciate all of it. No, thank you guys. Absolutely. Right. It's been great. All See right. you next time. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Bye. Our show today was produced and edited by Alex Helberg and Calvin Pollock. Reverb's web designer is Anna Cook, and our publicity and social media team is Ryan Mitchell and Audrey Strong. You can subscribe to Reverb and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Android, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Check out our website at www.reverbcast.com. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at ReverbCast. That's R-E-V-E-R-B underscore C-A-S-T. Thanks for tuning in.